With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Gigabit Nation. Broadband Talk Radio. I'm your host, Craig Settles, and I want to welcome everyone in the audience today, and thank you for taking time to be with us. Gigabit Nation's here to provide useful information and insights to help communities, companies, and nonprofit organizations get more, better broadband to everywhere it needs to be in America. Uh, today, we're actually going to continue a theme that we started uh, last week, which is um, communities have more options than they think uh, for moving broadband projects forward. Uh, money, of course, is, is often the root of all delays and pulling the trigger on, on some of these projects. But other times it's also a, a hostile political environment that gets uh, community broadband network projects put on the back burner. Now, one way uh, to uh, move these projects forward is to develop co-ops and nonprofits, which is what we discussed on last week's show with Wally Bowen, Today, we're going to explore the option of creating a community foundation. And if you've never heard of these, you're in for a very informative and energizing session uh, with us uh, because this is really some fascinating stuff that I think um, has a lot of potential for many communities, um, both urban and and, uh, rural. Our guest is uh, Sharon Stroh, who's the Director of Business Development for IMAN, which is the uh, supporting organization for the Steuben County Community Foundation and the driving one of the driving forces behind that community's broadband project. Um, Sharon, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Good afternoon. And we also have Bill Geiger, who is the CIO, uh, CEO, whoa, uh, the CEO for IMAN, and also uh, Jad Donaldson, who's the network administrator. So we have a full crew here to just dive right in and get to the topic at hand. So, um, Sharon, this whole idea of a community foundation may be new to folks. What exactly um, is that? And how do you form one? Well, I'll start at the beginning, Craig. There are over 700 community foundations already established nationally, the largest concentration of which already exist in the Midwest, particularly in Indiana, Ohio, and Michigan. Many of your listeners may already know who their contact is, but I do have a website um, that will give you a community foundation locator um, it is sponsored by the Council on Foundations, and we can uh, I can give that to you now, or we can wait until a later time. Oh, we could probably. Well, yeah, I mean, you go ahead and give it now. That way, it'll be on you know on the air, and then you can send me that, and I can post it to the uh, to the page later. No problem. Of course, it's www.cof like in Frank dot org forward slash locator. If okay. there isn't a community foundation close, another neutral community-centered public charity, such as an economic development corporation or a regional economic marketing partnership may also be useful. Um, And if these resources are also not available, 
a community foundation can be created through a standard legal filing for charitable status with the IRS. A couple of things just to be aware of, you'll want to make sure that you have both legal and accounting representation for the document preparation. There's also a filing fee involved, and that will depend on your state. And you will also need to file with your Secretary of State to get your business entity report. And of course, the, a great resource would be to contact the Council on Foundations, which is part of that uh, website that I gave you early. They are nationally recognized uh, for membership organizations such as community foundations, and they're based out of D.C. Okay. Excellent. So it doesn't sound like an onerous uh, process to create uh, to create one of these, though clearly yeah. uh, you do have to uh, pay attention to the legalities and the paperwork and so forth and so on. Absolutely. Okay. But it is how, a pretty simple process. Okay. So now how does a foundation like this get its uh, um, financing, or or is that sort of a it varies with every location kind of issue? A community foundation builds its asset base through donor contributions for a variety of purposes that they wish to support. Economic development can be one such area. In IMAN's case, funding was obtained through conversations with local government, business, utilities, educational facilities, and private foundation representatives. Um, as of now, IMAN has raised about $2.7 million and has another just over 200,000 in requests for funding pending. Mm -hmm. I think our original goal was to raise about 3.2 million, but we've managed to keep costs down and many of the items have come in under budget. So we feel really comfortable with the progress that we've made. But I will be honest, Craig, this has definitely been a public-private partnership, and I know you have talked about that a number of times as well on your show. Mm -hmm. So you said you've raised over $2 million? 2.7, wow. and we have another 200,000 in grant requests that are still pending. We haven't heard the outcome of those yet. Uh-huh. And um, is this, uh, I guess the question, well, one of several questions would probably be, in the current economic climate, does, it, does, does this current climate make um, fundraising for the foundation or for a foundation uh, more difficult than usual, or have you seen, you know, it sort of stay at a steady state? Uh, you know, the answer to that is multiple. I will tell you that if folks have disposable income, charitable giving is still a great way for them to uh, use that. Mm -hmm. And to be able to give it to something where it's going to provide the greatest good for them for their own communities makes it pretty simple. And they huh. get the tax deduction for it. Right. Now, obviously, if you're in an economic situation where there is very little disposable income, yeah, you're going to have some difficulties. So that's when you have to make your case for support that much more important. Okay. And we go back to the, to the mainstays of what broadband means to us. It is the infrastructure challenge of the 20th century, 21st century. It's as important now as electricity was in the 1800s. You know, you just keep driving that message. Mm-hmm. So that makes it important. So let's uh, separate for a second. We have the um, we have the process for building the uh, or creating the foundation. 
then at some point you identify um, what the foundation's purpose is going to be. So, I mean, in theory, the, the, the foundation can have a multifaceted purpose or purposes, and broadband would just be one of them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Or or you could just say we're going to do this foundation specifically to create uh, and support a broadband network. Either way would work for you, Craig. Okay. Is there any sense of, uh, you know, an advantage going one way or the other? You know, do you tend to get – you okay, let me try it hypothetically. Would a community be more likely to get greater support if the mission was economic development across the board – of which broadband is maybe the key or the keystone of it all. But, you know, as opposed to um, we're going to do this this foundation just to do broadband. I would say that that depends on your situation, Craig. But I will tell you that the Steuben County Community Foundation was established in 1992. So it already had a very um, stable um, presence in Steuben County before this economic and broadband initiative came along. Mm-hmm. So it, it it was already in place, and that's what made it that neutral entity that we were looking for. It made sense for it to be the place where the profits, so to speak, from our subscriber fees would go. And that way they would uh, be recycled, so to speak, into the community in the form of grant making. Now, how does the grant making process typically work? You, you you set up the money. I mean, obviously, that's the clear part. Um, and then you have some X number of people that come in and say, okay, we want to get a grant for whatever. But is there like a, I don't know, a recommended process or does each foundation establish its criteria for, you know, who's eligible, who will actually be on the review committee, you know, all those logistics of the granting process? Again, I think that depends on your situation, but I will tell you the IRS will tell you some of this mm-hmm. because the IRS explains very clearly what you can and cannot make grants to as a public charity. In other okay. words, you can't do anything that's sectarian. You can't do anything that's politically involved, You know, but you can do um, grant making for health and human services, education, environmental preservation, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that is up to the board of directors that govern the community foundation. Right, okay. But uh, needless to say, you have some what I would call federal guidelines, and then you have the local sort of response within the framework of those guidelines, and then that becomes your funding process. That's correct. Okay. So now what is a supporting organization? It's the legal description that's awarded by the IRS to an organization allowing it to use the umbrella of an already established 501c3 public charity. In other words, IMAN supports the Steuben County Community Foundation. So the Community Foundation is supported and IMAN is supporting. That's how that relationship works. Okay. IMAN has its own tax ID number. They file its own 990 and audit reports, uh, but they use the charitable status of the community foundation. Classic example here 
is a university endowment fund. The supporting organization raises the funds to support either operations or scholarship programs at the university, but doesn't necessarily involve itself in the education of students. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. IMAN works the same way. IMAN builds fiber so that the subscriber fees come in and are used for grant-making purposes. Gotcha. All right. So let's talk about, um, uh, I don't know, the uh, the financial numbers and the projections and so forth that are developed. Because at some point, uh, I'm, I'm gathering that that became, you know, someone said, okay, well, this is a lot of money. We got to, you know, we got to do X, Y, and Z, and so forth. How do or how did you go about the process of figuring out that this would be a successful venture once you once you plunged into it? Craig, this is one of those moments where I'm going to hand it off to Bill. Okay. So you're going to be hearing from him to answer that question. Yeah, Craig. Yes. The answer to that is, is this is a need-driven uh, fiber build, okay? Mm-hmm. And our current need in Subang County was the city of Angola. They had a need to connect their uh, facilities, their wastewater department, the street department, and uh, other offices, parks department. They had $150,000 they were going to spend. And IMAN had a vision four years previous to them spending that of developing IMAN and becoming a supporting organization, which was a three-year process. Uh, we got accepted as a supporting organization, and we had all the legal work done, but we, of course, had no funding. But the city of Ang- uh, our city, Angola, in Steuben County, had that need to connect those offices. So they, they uh, gave IMAN their $150,000 check, if I may say, to invest to connect their facilities, at which time we built an infrastructure that consisted of 96 fibers. The city needed six of those 96. On the path of building the backbone, we went by Steuben County government, we went by the hospital, and we went by our schools. And we made connections uh, for the hospital, the schools, and the government, of which they uh, paid a fee to be connected month to month. And from that, those fees collected month to month, we continued building another half mile or a mile for about seven years until we grew to where we are today. So this started back in 2003, and as of to date, we're, we're pushing around 75 miles of fiber, uh, 40 connections, generating revenues around $80,000 a year. And this is uh, these dollars are dollars that are, we've been putting back into the build and building forward. So that is how we started. It doesn't it's a puzzle and it doesn't take hundreds and thousands of dollars to start. It's a process. It requires somebody in the community to just step up and say, We want to have a neutral fiber for our, our communities and the return on investment can can come back to the communities for community projects. IMAN does not sell services, it just builds the path, the the fiber path. Uh, to serve businesses for point-to-point connections and also allows 
for-profit service providers to come in and sell services. So it is an, an open access network. Yes, sir. Okay, um, which really is um, dovetails with what I think is starting to become more and more the accepted path in communities, which is let us build the infrastructure, let others come in and provide the services, because um, it, it, it tends to be number one, I think, more financially uh secure of a, of a of an option because you're not getting into the ups and downs of service you know selling service and at the same time you are you're you're developing the infrastructure and we start to think about it, the internet differently when we think about it as an infrastructure versus oh this is some entertainment channel that we're building correct craig craig let me let me break in here this is jed and let mm-hmm. me say that um where it really starts to pay benefits is is kind of twofold one thing is that a community that built their own fiber network isn't going to pay an outside company that may not want to invest in their community due to the, the inherent risk of loss of not having enough people sign up for it. Um, so, you know, where the price points become extraordinary because of the shareholder value that needs to be built into a public entity that wants to come into a community and build a fiber network, a community foundation doesn't have that fiduciary responsibility to shareholder value. Therefore, the price and the cost of the fiber doesn't need to be um, as high and as marked up as it would be. So it it reduces the barrier of connection for all the community uh, businesses and entities to be able to connect up to the fiber network. It makes it uh, much less expensive and much more palatable. Combined with the fact that since it's being housed through the community foundation as the funding source, the 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 not-for-profit status allows us, allows us to raise money uh, through um, all forms of, of fundraising that we don't have to we don't have to worry about having to make the money back on the subscription fees. Um, so when we're able to um, when we're able to raise 2.7 million dollars, we can move forward deriving $80,000 a year to start with as a revenue stream for the foundation, while any other corporation would have to pay not only interest on the $2.7 million, would have to pay the $2.7 million back, would have to do all these other things with that money that would drive the cost up and would, would cause would act as a barrier for the hospital, the school districts, and the county offices and the city offices to be able to connect to it. Huh. That uh, definitely answers a lot of um, questions, a lot of the challenges. I mean, basically it all comes down to money. I mean, everything obviously does. But it also is consistent with the you know, theme that those of us who advocate broadband and community broadband in particular have uh, that um, if we take this equation out of the normal corporate business mode where you have the, the, the stockholder issue that trumps just about everything else, um, you, you create a, a less expensive outlay and you also remove um i mean you open up opportunities for a more competitive environment but you're also at the same time reducing risk on the community side because that's always been an objection in the past you know it's like well we can't do this because taxpayer dollars will be at risk and the dynamics particularly of this foundation if i'm you know understanding everything 
correctly, is that we're 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 just changing all of the dynamics which lead to all of the problems, and then enabling us to move forward in a way that is not as expensive, and there will still be opportunities for private sector companies to make a dollar. Yeah, that's correct. And and by by as you just pointed out, by being an open network, so to speak, if the private companies want to come in you know, they don't have a barrier to entry either because they're not having to worry about having to build the fiber network. Uh, the foundation doesn't have the risk because, as we all know in the broadband world, the fiber optic cable that we're installing today is made of the exact same patent technology that, that was built in the 1960s. It hasn't aged at all. It mm-hmm. has no latency built into it, you know. So the only thing that gets better with fiber technology is the electronics we put on the end. And at IMAN, we don't profess the technology that goes on the end. We simply offer the dark fiber solution and allow our customers to light that fiber to whatever need um, they they have, whether that's, you know, connecting two MRI machines across the county, uh, connecting hospitals and with doctor's offices, or connecting uh, the entire school districts of uh, five different communities together so that they can all share from the same uh, single-point Internet feed. They're able to light that fiber uh, certainly at their expense, which is nominal at best, uh, there's, there's not a lot of cost in lighting the fiber, and we're not in a position to have to support technology or support uh, any electronics in any way, shape, or form. We simply just support the backbone. And as Bill likes to point out, we call that the umbilical cord or the extension cord from building to building and community to community. And um, by housing this in the foundation, certainly there's a win. The foundation uh, fronts the money and the build. But then the foundation, you know, uh, I think in our build-out, 60 cents of every dollar uh, is heading back to the community foundation. When we're all said and done, it's a pretty easy sell to walk up to the president or CEO of a business that's in our community and ask him to be part of this network for the betterment of his organization and the reduction in the operating cost of his company, the direct bottom-line operating cost reduction, and therefore telling him that, look, the best part about this is 60 cents of every dollar you spend on your monthly fees is going to end up right back in the Steuben County Community Foundation. You know, what's the downside to this? There, There is none. Hmm. You're right. Okay, that definitely makes a lot of sense. Now, do you uh, – what kind of providers have you found uh, have been most receptive? Is it the ISPs, wireless ISPs, uh, telecom companies? Who's who's Who's, who's an anxious player for this? Well, the the ISP, you know, traditionally the the small to medium sized ISP is going to be the one that's going to jump in, the local player, whoever that local person is, is going to be who's going to do it. Um, you know, it's interesting in a rural community. Of course, this is where this plays the best. Um, it's it's going to be a little hard to go to a Minneapolis, St. Paul, or to a Columbus, Ohio, or to a even a Fort Wayne, Indiana, and think that you're going to put in a fiber, a private fiber network. It's going to be a little more difficult because those communities really have a large volume of business that is already supporting through the private sector some fairly significant networks and some fairly significant fiber networks for that matter. But when you go to the rural communities, those fiber networks are never going to get built. You're, you're never going to find the corporations that are going to be willing to spend um, the kind of money that's going to be necessary to connect those communities together. So when the um, when the foundation does that, it really offers the opportunity now for a small to medium-sized Internet service provider to come in and, and say, okay, I'll, I'll supply the services on top of your fiber, and I'll lease the fiber back for each of my customers, and I'll connect them up, and we'll do Internet access, and we'll do, you know, voice over IP services, and we can do um, 
shared bandwidth options. We can do off-site backup and storage solution options. And these are all things that, quite frankly, Craig, the small to, to medium-sized businesses that are in these rural communities have traditionally never been able to have available to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the ones that were wanting to buy it were paying top dollar for it. You know, we, we talk about it in Steuben County even today, and to bring in a 1.5 meg T1 connection from the local telephone company is still four to five to six hundred dollars a month. Um, that's a significant cost to a small business for mm-hmm. a 1.5 meg connection. Um, you know, we're able to bring a $300 connection in. You know, I'm using round numbers and and offer a 10 meg connection for $300 a month. So hmm. we've cut in half a one a, what what they would have paid for a 1.5 meg connection. We've multiplied it by about seven and a half times of increase in bandwidth and drop the cost by as much as 50%. And 60 cents of every dollar is going back to the community. Mm-hmm. I'm going to come back to the to the, to the the breakdown between operating and, and fundraising. Uh, now, I am currently writing a number of pieces about uh, broadband in urban areas because I think that, you know, obviously a lot of the focus on, on – um, broadband has been for rural communities because it's clear that you know there's just not a lot of infrastructure of any sort being made available to them but there is a sort of this un I don't know sort of unrecognized or underrecognized aspect of things which is urban areas have infrastructure issues too in mainly in low income areas where they are not perceived as offering a high ROI. They're not likely candidates for triple play purchases. They are in areas where over time the infrastructure has deteriorated or uh, the, the, it has become oversubscribed. And in all of those cases, the large companies are reluctant to spend money for new infrastructure in those communities. Could not a um, you know East LA or a, a less uh, um, you know a low income part of the community of an urban area be a candidate for a foundation to build its own infrastructure? Well, Craig, I sure I certainly think it could. Um, it would certainly require. Um, some very strategic partnerships being built um, as you build the foundation and then as the foundation reaches out. You know, at some point you are going to need the help of um, – you are going to need <clears throat> the help of, of local business and local uh, telecom companies to help you do some interfacing. If, for instance, you're taking a underserved or um, oversaturated uh, region and it's a small sub-community of something as big as L.A., um, you would still need that the, the local service providers to help you make some of the connections. But, yes, yeah, certainly you could go in there and lay out 6, 8, 9, 20 miles of fiber in that area and make some connections and then connect that point of presence to the world um, through several different resources. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely definitely possible. Mm-hmm. Although I would say that in those environments, you know, it can be somewhat, um, you know, it's going to take some time and some energy to try to overcome. One of the things that we've been very beneficial in having in Steuben County is um, that uh, Bill especially has done just an outstanding job uh, on behalf of IMAN at creating some strategic partnerships between our uh, power providers, our, our electric utility providers, um, and IMAN. 
and that's been very critical because, as, as we all know, we're, we're putting up a physical infrastructure. We're physically hanging a cable on a utility pole, or we're putting the cable and boring it underground. And we need to, we need to have the appropriate rights and access to uh, right-of-ways, and we also need to be able to work on uh, and allow, be allowed to attach to the utility poles. And if we hadn't had that strategic partnership, I think it could have been a, a lot more difficult for us. So basically, um, in the urban areas, it's going to be a higher, tougher road to to climb, just by virtue of, you know, the lay of the land. Like quite literally, you've got things in place, you've got right of way issues. Uh, it's always harder to build a conduit in urban areas. You know, the concrete jungle, as it were. Um, so I can accept that. I know that, for example, I've had conversations with a small cable company in um, Philadelphia, and they serve predominantly low-income areas, and they're trying to, you know, they're grappling with the dollar and cents issue because the big companies don't want to go in because there's no return on investment. You know, they're a small company, so obviously capital is a big deal. But it would seem like, you know, if they partnered with the right, maybe the, the a couple of the universities or with uh, a couple of the you know businesses that have an interest in that as a market, um, you know, could then become a partner in the foundation creation part, and then let the the, the cable company work through the mechanics and the uh, you know the right of way issues and so forth. Might might be a way to go. No, Craig, this I'm, is Sharon. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm going to interject a, just a little story here um, about why it's important for local people to take responsibility for this. Folks in Steuben County know Sharon. They know Bill. They know Jad. You know, they see us at coffee in the morning. If there's a question, they can come up to us and say, hey, this is what's going on, or I hear about something or other. You know, just this morning, Bill had to go and talk to the um, director at the Catholic Church because we needed a small easement area to be able to do some directional boring. And so, you know, you swap business cards and a cup of coffee and you say, this is what we're looking for, Pastor So-and-so. And, you know, that's how you make those things work. Relationships are very important. So if you're talking about inner city or, you know, multi-urban or areas with uh, specific niche areas, again, it's going to be about the relationships that already exist. And if you've got that network of people with names and faces and, and have proven track records of doing good things, Again, it's going to pave that way for them. Mm-hmm. And that you know that makes a lot of sense. And by the way, while we're while we're talking about you know these relationships, when you and I spoke uh, a couple of days ago, we talked about um, the uh, initial customers, in addition to the city city government, are also those anchor institutions who I'm assuming were the backbone of the backbone. So I'll pun there, couldn't help myself. Um, but they're they're. <laughs> They're, you know, they're they're a key part of this early, you know, coming out of the gate effort. Um, explain a little bit about how you worked with those uh, institutions, those anchor tenants, as it were. Well, um, we worked with them uh, on a, and it was a need-driven basis. As we built, they had a need. At which time, when we were getting close to a, a facility that they needed to get to, we just grew, and from the the monthly fees, it would allow us to go to the next and go to the next. So it's a puzzle. 
I, that's about the simplest way I can say this, is we're putting a puzzle together, and it doesn't have to be a piece connected to a piece. In our build, we built uh, two miles apart, and eventually the pieces all came together. Mm-hmm. And we continue to build it that way. Um, I, we have connections uh, 10 miles apart. I built, uh, there was a need in one community to connect a couple facilities, which we built that one. And, and now, in the next two to three months, we're going to tie it all together. So our, our puzzle for Steuben County within the next six to nine months will be coming, uh, you're going to start seeing what it looks like and uh, offer a lot of needs and services for a lot of businesses. Mm-hmm. Now, is there someone who is driving the economic development impact of the network? And what I mean by that is um, you, you can put a network in place, but if you want it to impact economic development, I mean, forgetting the, 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 the granting aspect of the foundation, but if you want the network to play a role in economic development, usually somebody has to like take that as a specific task. You have to build a plan, you have to build a structure, people, so forth, in order to, to get to that end point. Does something like that exist uh, in, in, in Steuben County? Oh, sure, absolutely. As a matter of fact, um, our local economic development corporation's executive director and their board of directors have earmarked the completion of IMAN as one of their priorities for their strategic plan. So the EDC obviously is looking for ways that they can drive business to the fiber just as the fiber is trying to get to the business. Mm-hmm. So they are very much partners. Okay. And and so, yeah, it was interesting when I did a survey of economic uh, development professionals a few months ago, one of the questions dealt with, um, you know, do you have a plan? Do you have an actual ec- economic development plan that incorporates broadband? And the higher percentage of communities that actually have broadband worked into their economic development plan were rural areas, which um, I found interesting, though probably logical considering that I think in some rural communities they f- they feel the, that um, need for economic advancement probably more so because they're so close to the edge of you know failing as as cities or towns or what have you, and so as a result, they're going to be more aggressive at the planning their way out of this particular dilemma. Is sort of my take on the thing. I read that survey and I was intrigued by some of the responses as well, including the fact that um, almost half of your respondents believed that it should be a community-owned fiber structure as opposed to, you know, one of the large incumbents coming in and developing a plan for them, mm-hmm. if I'm not mistaken. I think that was the result of your research. Right. Uh, there, there was a, you know, there's a, there's a fair amount of support. You know, I, I, maybe I look at the, the glass a little, you know, differently sometimes because I'm, I'm always wondering, well, why isn't there a greater uh, sense of, you know, the community can do this? And I think part of it is, Maybe people don't understand the options. I mean, that's why we're you know we're having this conversation today, because I bet dollars to donuts, you know, a lot of people advocating for broadband haven't looked at this as an option because they just don't have any examples of it. And um, and you know, I'm hoping that in a year, you know, this will this will turn around a little bit. Um, do you get many um, wireless 
ISPs interested in becoming part of the the network? You know, yeah, Craig, this is Jad, and, and mm-hmm. one of the things that we do, we do have that. Um, we have them wanting to, the wireless ISPs are wanting to put some of their end nodes uh, where their distribution points are going to be on the end of the fiber. Mm-hmm. So they use the fiber to uh, connect back to their um, primary distribution point and then um, out at the end, for instance, on top of water towers or on top of other um, vertical towers, they're able to put their uh, transmission equipment. And so they're not trying to backhaul all the data from uh, their customers across mm-hmm. uh, across a wireless connection. They backhaul it across the fiber connection, which allows them a greater bandwidth and, of course, less congestion on their network. Mm-hmm. So, it, you know, indeed it does help the distribution one of the other things we're looking at doing is we're talking to some of the big cell phone providers about helping them backhaul their data because traditionally, uh, in the, especially in the rural areas, the cell phone towers are backhauling wirelessly, and they would much prefer to backhaul on fiber. So huh. one, of the, one of the things we're looking at doing is getting in and helping them with some fiber connections and helping them get uh, off of their towers onto the ground and into the fiber network so that they can uh, more easily uh, and at larger volumes be able to transmit that data. Mm-hmm. One thing I wanted to jump back to real quick about um, kind of the, the methodology. One of the things that, first off, let, let me make it clear. IMAN started from a, a design criteria that, that Bill and I put together. Um, geez, it went back to about 1999. And it started with a feasibility study, actually, from a, a local um, uh, economic uh, industrial, what we call it, the Angola Industrial Growth Board. Um, they this This was a group of, Oh, I'd, I'd call them founding fathers, but certainly uh, business owners and, and community representatives who had traditionally helped the Steuben County area develop their um, industrial growth parks. And what had happened in the late 90s in the boom of everything that was going on uh, in northeast Indiana, uh, Steuben County ran out of industrial property. Uh, we were getting uh, more demand for businesses wanting to move in without the ability to have, you know, we didn't have ready, you know, basically ready to build sites for our industry to move in. Um, So one of the things that began to drive this was how do we, and this is where I wanted to get back to with your economic development, how do we um, make it more cost-effective and easier as a digital plan uh, using broadband to help um, uh, help make the multiple, there's five different primary communities in Steuben County. How do we use and leverage their industrial parks that may not be at full capacity, whereas Angola's was at full capacity? And that's where Bill and I really started with a feasibility study. We laid out uh, what we call digital real estate, and we said we're going to build a fiber network to connect the physical real estate with digital real estate that will allow the business to say, look, if you if you want to move into Angola, we've got 60,000, a 60,000 square foot parcel, or, or we can build a 60,000 square foot facility. But up in the up in the next town of Fremont, which is also in our county, we've got room for another 120,000 square foot facility up there. But because we have fiber between these two locations, your cost to connect these two buildings together from a from a phone, voice, video, and digital data standpoint will be next to zero. Well, that makes the value of those two properties go up. Uh, while they're they're independently in different communities, um, they're only you know so many miles apart, eight miles apart, and you know business owners are able to look at that and say, okay, well we can put offsite warehousing up in this other community and have our manufacturing facility in the first community, <clears throat> and because we have digital real estate, because we have broadband fiber connecting it together, it makes that um, that much better. The other thing is <clears throat> by having literally a map, we built an entire map, we we delineated inside our feasibility study, 
where the fiber was going to go, how much fiber was going to be put up, where it was going to connect to, what, what, what was going to be the, fa- the phased implementation plan, and what were going to be the stakeholders, who was going to be able to connect to it, and what were they going to do with it. And in doing so, I think a lot of people out there, they look at this and they say, well, we want to do fiber, but it looks as though it's such a big task, it may be daunting and, and almost impossible to actually get done when it's really far easier. And, and one thing I'd like to add don't let anybody tell you that you're not allowed to put fiber up on utility poles in your community. And we have some communities in, north, in northern Indiana that their school districts and their municipalities were told they weren't even allowed to build their own fiber. They weren't allowed to be in the right-of-ways. They weren't allowed to connect to the utility poles, that that was only for the cable providers or for the big telco companies. And that's just simply not true. Anybody can be there but certainly you have to follow the rules and you have to do your due diligence and, and you have to um, make your own relationships in order to make that happen. Well, that seems counter to the folks that say, well, I guess people who bring this up, but when you say that you can't be kept out or off of those poles, how how is that true? Well, because those poles are granted to the utility company uh, by the de facto that they are a monopoly. You don't normally have five different power companies running their separate power poles down, down the sides of the streets. There's uh-huh. only one in each community. Therefore, by the letter of the law, they have to allow – now, they don't have to make it easy for you to connect onto their utility poles. <laughs> but they uh-huh. certainly have to give you the opportunity, and you have to follow the same rules that any utility would. So who who is it that usually makes the rules? Because um, I, I got the impression that every community it could be a different body that makes the rules. And that's the right-of-way rules for the utility poles, right? Or are well, we basically are at a disadvantage because we, we name them utility poles and they're not utility poles? They're just poles that exist and utility companies are the primary ones that use them? Really, it comes down to who bought the poles. Who's the who's the physical owner? Um, for instance, we have, uh, we have the... Uh, NIPSCO, the Northern Indiana Public Service Company, who owns our, our primary uh, utility, our electric utility in Steuben County. Well, NIPSCO owns the poles, and the, the rules are delineated by primarily, and Bill, maybe you can jump in and help me, but they have their own rules for how the cable gets mounted on those poles and where everybody's going to be. Bill, can you clear that up? Yeah, um, each utility company has their own rules. Um, NIPSCO has a standard that they they go by, and um, before IMAN can touch their poles, we'll do an engineering study on their poles for them and show them that their poles are not overloaded. And if they are overloaded, what do we need to do to correct them before we can attach to them? Uh, and they have a standard. Uh, REMC has a different standard. Um, they're our rural electric company uh, here in town in Steuben County. So we have... We deal with uh, really three power companies. Then we have I, uh, AEP, which is another uh, utility, and they have their standards. All three are different, and you have to understand what their requirements are and what uh, they require before we can attach to them and abide by their rules. After which time, uh, they won't be, I don't want to say deny you, but you're going to pull, uh, pay a pull attachment fee every year. Uh, it may be X amount of dollars up to 500 poles, like uh, $1,000 a year to attach to 500 poles. And uh, that's your fee for attaching to those poles. 
and they're all going to be different. So you got to do a little feasibility study, see where you're going, and uh, what the routes are going to be in your community, and what we call make-ready costs are going to be, and, uh, and in some situations you're going to bury it because it's going to be cheaper to bury interduct than it is going to be to pay for make-ready costs. So. But I'm I'm not I'm not sure I'm understanding. Isn't there though? Isn't what you're saying though is that the utility companies own the pole, and so subsequently, if they're the owner, they could basically make a rule that says you can't be on their pole. No, they can't deny you to be in the right of way or on their pole. Um, like they can't deny you because of law, state law, or local law, law, or. Mm-hmm. In our Steuben County area, that is. I mean, well, they they can't deny you primarily because they're a monopoly, and either the county government, the local government, the state government has given them the right to put their network up. They've come and made their investment. Uh, for them to be able to deny you access in the right of way or on on their poles. Now they can tell you that their poles are overloaded. They can tell you that you may have to buy them new utility poles, uh, bigger ones and and stronger ones, and you may have to pay to have them install it. But at the end of the day, they're not the they're, they're not going to bar you from doing it, and that's primarily why if you if you're driving down the side of the road in your community and you look up there and you see the the electrical cables are up on top, and then about halfway down the pole you'll see the first telephone wires appear, and below that there may be some fiber cables, and below that there may be some other um, types of of low voltage cables uh, attached to it as well, and they have to meet a, a standard off the ground, so you don't want trucks driving through them and pulling them down. They have to meet a distance away from each other on the pole, and they have to meet a distance away from the high-voltage electricity that's up on the top portion of it. But there's not going to be <clears throat> all the utility companies all work together to utilize the same resources, and certainly there's fees involved and whatnot. But it's not, you know, your community is not going to be, should not be, under any circumstances, um, held hostage by your local utility. And let's let's understand something. Your local utility has every um, advantage in helping a, a, especially a community foundation build their own broadband initiative, especially if it's done right. Um, it's good for the community. It's good for everybody there. As we like to say, uh, I think every taxpayer in Steuben County is going to find out that this community foundation built network is going to touch every person there. Um, we're planning on uh, helping our, our community 911 center attached to their high bandwidth uh, radio transmission tower to pass more data out to every fire truck and police car that's out in our community. And currently, the uh, the limited bandwidth that's available to our distribution tower is uh, stopping a lot of data that we need to get out there. So our fiber network is going to help build that, which, def- which 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 would mean to me that every single person in the community is going to be advantaged by the uh, the foundation building this fiber network. Right, but it sounds like there is still some negotiation process that has to happen, and that in the course of that negotiation you could still be at a disadvantage. But it sounds like you're saying is the, the bottom line is they can't deny you if, if you really push it far enough. But That's you're going to have to they, make They can make it difficult for you, but they can't deny you. Correct. And the other thing you need to understand is uh, adding fiber is going to add to the utility's bottom dollar because if we can bring infrastructure in and economic development that means more businesses and more homes to heat and power. <laughs> huh. Well and Craig, let me let me explain something else. One of the things that we're getting into as well in our community is that um you know the 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 utility companies they want to know what's happening with their power. Their product is the power that they're delivering to every home and business in the community. Mm-hmm. 
well. One of the things that all their equipment has ability to do is to be network managed and be network monitored. And you, a lot of times, if you're if you're good at building some relationships, you may find that if you were to give a couple strands of fiber, for instance, to your utility company to help them connect their substations together, they'd be able to do remote monitoring much more effectively than they could with standard wireless technology. So in the and end, it's all about you. You got to be prepared for a negotiation journey. It sounds do. like, which is, I mean, you know, I mean, that's fine. At least I think people just need to understand that and because I think the general conception is that, you know, if you are in certain communities you can indeed be denied and I think it's more what you're describing is that it's not so much that you can be denied as some people's road will be a little harder to cover <laughs> than others, depending on the person and personality of the of the utility. And I'm sure that being a you know, a private utility is probably a different you know, amount of sledding than a public utility is. Um, depending on where we're talking about. So let's talk a little bit about um, the money side of things. Uh, one of the things I find fascinating is that, I believe if I'm correct, your average business user is paying about you know, $205 a month for service. By the way, how much speed is that? do they get for that? $225 a month is a standard business connection. For how much speed? And they're up to a gigabyte. Up to a gig? Yeah. Up well, to a gig. Okay. So so let me ask this question, because this is the the crux of the matter, and then we have, we got about ten minutes here. Um if I'm if I'm collecting two hundred and twenty five dollars per subscriber and sixty five percent of that after the build out is done of the you know, after you finish building out the network, sixty five percent of that goes into the foundation for giving for grants. Um, how does that thing make, how does it break even? You know, because you've got people talking about, you know, a gig for, you know, hundreds of dollars and maybe even a thousand in some places. How do you make these numbers work? Well, first you got to understand we don't have a debt service because all dollars that we're building on are what I'll call free dollars. Uh, they've all been uh, granted dollars to build the network. So we have no debt service. Okay, um, oh, and the overhead. Uh, there is uh, so to date. There's only uh, three of us that run this. Okay, of which I probably do ninety percent of the work. Okay, as far as building and developing. Is that it. true, Sharon? Did you get away with that? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Jed and I will argue that with him some yeah. days, but yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. But go ahead. I, and I didn't mean it to sound that bad, but as far as the day to day, doing the paperwork, the billing, the development, I'm I'm hands on 24/7 um, on the project, and you know, it, it's been a process and a journey, and it's growing, and uh, we're we've really stepped up here the last two years to where uh, previous to that, you know, it might be a few hours a week. In the last two years, we've really stepped it up to its full time job. And uh, we're growing and growing fast, and uh, glad for that, and glad for that for our community. Um, but we're still all contractors. There is no staff necessarily for IMAN. The Community Foundation has a staff. That's, that's separate. We're all contractors. We get paid by the hour, so to speak. 
Okay. Sort of work I'm, we put into so, it. So basically, in this structure, again, once you've covered the cost of the build out, operationally, um, I mean, is it easier? I'm assuming it's easier to operate because really all you are providing is the infrastructure as opposed to the services, right? I mean, you don't that really get into the. So you have mm-hmm. customer ser- service issues and so forth. Correct. That's correct. IMAN still has to cover things like the billing and collection of the subscribers. Um, any maintenance that needs to be done on the wires, on the fiber. Um, locator service, you know, our worst nightmare is a backhoe. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the time that's involved for us to go out and talk to folks about what this fiber project is and look for new subscribers and see if there's a way we can replicate this in our neighboring counties so that we can continue to hold hands with the next county and you know, continue with that handshake. Mm-hmm. So a uh, couple of questions come to mind. What about the actual service? In other words, there's a connection and then there's a service. Because you're not in the service business, you get outside service providers. So is the um, is the businesses paying, are the businesses paying $225 just to have the connection and they still then have to pay for services that they get? Yes, Um Two things okay. here. Uh, we have point to point where a business wants to tie another facility together. Mm-hmm. And that's totally their fiber. They light it. They put the equipment on it. They got it. If they want to get connection or more, they can go for it. So they pay anywhere in Steuben County $225. Then we have the service providers. So now we're going to go a, a point connection from one of those business locations back to a service provider. Depending on what it is, it could be $125 to $225 a month. And that's determined on if it's a single-strand fiber or a duplex-strand fiber. Okay. Okay. But what they're paying for is actually the access to dark fiber. They're not paying for the service. No, the service is on top of that because depending on what the service need is and the cost of that service is going to vary. Um, uh, So... It just depends on who those service providers are and what they're going to set their rates at, and IMAN does not control any of that. Right. No, no, that, that's fine. It, just, it was more mm-hmm. that um, I was missing a point, had to get that, that clarity thing in there to figure out, um, you know, the difference between access and service. Uh, but then the service can vary depending on what you're getting and so forth, and that makes a lot of sense. Is there any intent to... Uh, to provide fiber to um, homes? I I think I'll step up here on that one. Um, Not really knowing how this business model would be received in our area, you know, over the last decade, IMAN chose to be a business model only at first. You know, we didn't want to bite off more than we could chew by offering residential services too. Mm -hmm. I will say, though, that as people learn about what's happening here, there is a greater demand for it at the home level. Our region here in Indiana is heavily marketed as a resort area, over 101 lakes to our credit. That brings in a lot of second home, what are called Lakers, Mm -hmm. uh, who may want to make this their permanent residence if the right resources and infrastructure are in place. So entrepreneurial is a key issue of this project, 
and we'll sit down and visit fiber to the home when we get done with the initial 75-mile build. Mm-hmm. What'll, well, Greg, what'll probably happen here is that we'll, we'll probably just take, uh, if there's underserved areas or areas that are, uh, you know, developments of, of homes that don't have services, uh-huh. uh, that, that's when we'll look at either having a service provider help us and we'll reach out and try to service those homes or, or we'll, we'll run the fiber in. But right now, you know, the price point's still high enough that most homeowners want to see a, a price point of 30 to $50 a month. Mm-hmm. And when each strand of fiber is still $112 a month, um, you know, it, 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 without services on it, it, it's hard to it's hard to get it to the price point that a homeowner is going to be uh, be willing to to take up. These are rural communities. These are these are good, hardworking people. But at the end of the day, you know, you, you don't want to see your entire paycheck going out the door because you want to have cable, TV, and a telephone. And, and quite frankly, we have some cable providers and some phone providers in town that are that are doing a, a decent job with with the residential side. So mm-hmm. it, it's probably not our place to jump in and compete with them. But certainly if somebody's underserved, then we may have to look at that in the future. Right. Let me ask this one question, be my probably my only political question. We have about three minutes or so left. Um, I had an interview uh, last week with uh, USA Today working on a story. They wanted to talk about uh, uh, the cities that are having issues with the cable companies because the city is providing triple play service on their uh, community network. And my response to them was, I think that if you are going to provide services, broadband services, go ahead and provide broadband services as a community, as a, a city, municipality, whatever, but try to avoid providing cable TV services because I think that's a big time sink. It's a money sink. No one's ever happy, and you just get you know shafted in the end. I mean, that was my blunt assessment. Is that an accurate assessment of you know of the triple play where TV should fit or not fit? I I would agree with that. We don't we don't view that as being a place where we uh, at least not a, a space that we want to play in. Right. You I know, mean, it, we, it, it's far easier to help the businesses, um, you know, and or if there's a residence have, you know, Internet access, um, possibly going as far as voice over IP and doing some VoIP services, although, you know, you have to be somewhat even careful with that. But the minute you try to get into the whole thing and you're going to run cable, you know, that's that's really best suited for the cable companies. And, and I don't know that that's something that I, I agree with your, your, your statement. Okay. So any parting uh, thoughts here? we got about two minutes. We seem to have neutralized. You seem to have neutralized the political issue because of how you're structured. Uh, true? Is that is that the case? You don't really get much political flack. No, no, haven't had that at all. Excellent. You had shot me a question earlier about um, why should other communities consider the foundation approach. Mm-hmm. And as I've thought about this, um, I'm going to go back to. And, and you, we haven't made mention of this before, but Craig, I was the CEO at the Steuben County Community Foundation when this project started in 1999. Mm-hmm. That's why I know it can be done. I've been there, done that. The glory of this is that instead of profits leaving town and going to some unknown shareholder in another state, our profits recycle within our own neighborhoods. If I spend $1,000 a month on connection fees, and I know that $650 of that will stay here to help provide funding for the new bike trail or the food pantry or a college scholarship, 
I feel better about the decision I've made, not just that I have fast, secure, and affordable bandwidth. Mm -hmm. And I will also say that we're taking responsibility for our own broadband destiny. You know, we're not waiting for a large incumbent to come our way and manage the fiber that it provides to us in the form of packages. Excellent. Um, we're going to have to wrap. We're going to have to wrap. I, I don't want to interrupt. I'm sorry. I know I know where you're going with this, and I definitely agree wholeheartedly. Um, I want to thank all three of you for being guests today and enlightening us, our audience, about uh, the values and virtues of the Community Foundation as a broadband strategy, and I think this is excellent. Uh, I'm a believer. If I if I had the capability, I'd be playing the monkey song. You know, I'm a believer. Well, anyway, never mind. <laughs> Some folks don't remember that, but in any event. I do. I do. <laughs> You guys weren't supposed to tell them your ages like that. I was just, you know. Anyway, um, I want to thank everyone for being here. Uh, this has been a lively, as promised, a lively discussion. I think everybody appreciates. And best of luck. We'll be in touch soon. And I hope we see our audience again uh, next week. Take care. Thank you. It's been our thank pleasure. You. Thank Bye. you. Bye. 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 Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash Boost by Tax Day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial, LLC, member SIPC.